0: The 2020 legislative session really only ended about a week ago, but lawmakers like State Representative Peter Meredith aren't getting much time to catch their breath. That's because the 2021 session begins in early January, and Meredith says his colleagues have a big financial and policy agenda to tackle. The St. Louis Democrat joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to preview the months ahead. So let's hit the music. is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House reporter.
2: Jacqueline Driscoll.
0: And joining us from beautiful city of St. Louis, we have a uh, state representative,
1: Peter Meredith.
0: But before we dive into issues, just remind our listeners uh, wh- what district you represent and what neighborhoods in St. Louis it encompasses.
1: Sure. So I'm the 80th district in South St. Louis City, uh, where I'm born and raised. It's got uh, Targrove Park kind of right in the middle of it. So, all the a little bit of Targrove East, uh, Targrove South. Shaw Neighborhood, Southwest Gardens, The Hill, um, and Kings Highway Hills are the main neighborhoods, although I've got little bits of some other
0: neighborhoods as well.
2: You are the representative to a lot of our newsroom.
1: I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I wanted to just ask you very generally, we're kind of on the precipice of the 2021 session after a 2020 session that felt endless because there were so many special sessions. How are you feeling going into 2021? given that it was only like a week ago that the 2020 session really ended.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a weird time, uh, with, with session, we didn't really have a full session at the beginning of the year, like normal. And we've just sort of trickled on with more sessions as we go. And frankly, with COVID still raging, we don't really know what session's going to look like come January. Uh, there may be still some, some breaks that happen depending on how things are going. Um, but we're also recovering from an election cycle that was, uh, Obviously heated. Um, we still have, you know, on the national level, huge divides happening. Um, that that I think it's going to be a challenge for us to get past. I, I think that, that that there are a lot of unknowns about what this se- what this session is going to look like as a result.
2: That was my first question because I am talking to uh, leadership about headed in about heading into the twenty twenty one general session. And a lot of my conversation is focused around COVID, obviously, because that's still um, very important. But have you received any correspondence from leadership or anything, uh, maybe just the Democratic caucus, about what session is going to look like? Um, I'm assuming mask mandates are out. They're not being considered. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, what what is it going to look like with you all in the Capitol with COVID still raging on? I know the vaccine is here, but... I know that the legislators are at the top of the list to get the vaccine.
1: No, we don't think we are either, and and we probably shouldn't be. Um, but uh, I, I know that a lot of the Republican caucus still refuses to wear masks, um, and it's it's really problematic. Um, they've refused to have a mask mandate. I tried to file a resolution to get uh, one imposed on us just within the House. Um, That never went anywhere. We've had a lot of conversations with leadership. Uh, um, Both sides have have talked about wanting it. Uh, Some folks on both sides actually. Um, But uh, it doesn't look likely. Um, I do think there's gonna be a harder push to get folks to wear masks. Um, And there will be some things like swearing in, for example, I think we're gonna be doing in in waves rather than everyone being in at once. We may have some uh, more remote options for hearings. Um, I, I think some of that is still being figured out as we get closer, but I would expect there to be uh, some some noticeable changes that happen as a
0: result. Uh, on the policy front, one thing that I saw a couple weeks ago is a number of Republicans are, are talking about making it harder for local officials to uh, enact COVID-19 related ordinances. And a lot of this is stemming from Uh, Backlash from St. Louis County Executive Sam Page's uh, actions during COVID. Interestingly, you're a St. Louis City official. St. Louis City has the most fragmented politics I've ever seen. I have seen no such outcry over Lida Krusen doing basically the same thing. Um, Probably because there are really no, there are not, there's not a critical mass of Republicans in St. Louis City as there is in St. Louis County. That's a discussion for another podcast. But but given the fact that you know Republicans do control the legislature and it does seem like there is some uh, critical mass in the legislature to maybe curb uh, local officials' abilities to do COVID restrictions, how how do you think that's going to play in the legislature?
1: I, I honestly expect that to move pretty well in the legislature. I never expected that this issue of um, of local jurisdiction over making public health decisions like that would. Um, would be a partisan issue. Um, but certainly everything around COVID seemed to become one and re- Republicans in Missouri seem pretty hell bent on capitalizing on all of the, the most extreme rhetoric of the right wing base. And that includes going after these restrictions. What I think is weird about it is that of course the governor from the beginning in Missouri has refused to have any leadership or statewide policies about COVID Um, And he said it absolutely needs to be left up to local jurisdictions to figure out. But then now all of the Republicans are saying, but, well, we don't like what certain local jurisdictions are doing. Um, Well, perhaps that wouldn't have happened if we'd had some statewide guidance, some statewide policies about how to keep people safe from the very beginning. Um, uh,
0: But I guess we'll see how that conversation plays out. Do you, th- one of the other interesting things is like some of these bills may not end up passing until like April or May. And hopefully, I mean, I think it's going to be a while before everybody gets the vaccine. But by the summer, there may be so many people vaccinated that the restrictions just may go away on their own.
1: I think we all hope that's the case. Um, And, and honestly, it may be that they push them as as largely a political statement uh, to rally their base and make a point that they didn't like it. Uh, and to, to try and blame local Democratic leaders for um, economic troubles as a result of COVID. I can tell you I've heard from business owners in St. Louis City just as much as I've heard from business owners in, in rural areas that have no restrictions, who are just as hurt right now because restrictions are no restrictions. Business is impacted dramatically, um, especially the more the, that COVID rages. But I think we'll find with with other issues, either we're going to have they're going to happen fast in order to actually have an impact on this situation, or they're going to be more symbolic as they happen later. Um, and, and I don't know which is which, you know, St. Louis City has elections coming up, municipal elections coming up. And right now we don't have covid uh, protections in pl- the ones that the legislature passed that people could vote by mail or that anyone over 65 or high risk for covid could vote absentee those expire December 31st, and the governor has refused to extend them and waive the the sunset clause. I don't know that the legislature is gonna have the will the the Republicans at least to to extend any of that anytime soon, especially with the right-wing narrative about all of those same protections leading to fraud.
2: I want to also make just a quick distinction because we cover policy and we know because we read it all the time, but also something to look out for um, is a lot of the resolu- or a lot of the laws or um, the bills that were passed earlier were specific to COVID-19. And I, I think as we move forward in the next general session and we're talking about local leaders being able to, you know, implement their own mandates or kind of take away some of their power, How I'm understanding, is they're going to do it in any pandemic type of situation? Is that what you've seen?
1: Yeah, you know, I've heard that talked about a lot and and sort of a reactionary step to this that just clamps down on local control on all this stuff, which I think, again, is a a shocking contrast to the initial approach by the governor of saying this should be handled at a local level. Um, Now they're actually going to go in and uh, with with these. Republicans that like to talk about local control, it seems one time after another, after another, after another, the laws they're actually passing are, are taking away local control. I mean, the same could be said of the CAFO situation in rural Missouri with local counties that want to be able to regulate the emissions of, of massive farming operations and the impact they have in their communities. And the state came in and said, nah, we don't think you should be able to limit those and let those those foreign pig farms come in and, and take over your county.
2: One another thing that you spoke about uh, recently just in the last question that I think is a good segue into a new topic is the economic effects of coronavirus. Here you will become with uh, Representative Kip Kendrick stepping down from the legislature the ranking minority chair of the budget committee. Um, So what lay what lie ahead for the budget and the coronavirus and what conversations do you anticipate having because that is still very important.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as we move to that, I want to mention the the conversations we just had really about the relief funds that came in from the federal level, because I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation. And I personally have been extremely frustrated with how that process played out. We have a couple billion dollars in funds that came to our state to go to relief. um, And the legislature had the opportunity to appropriate that money. And instead of doing that, uh, Republicans didn't want to mess with the details. And they said, we're just going to leave this up to the government. And what we're finding out is the money's not getting spent. The money's not getting to the hands of struggling businesses or folks suffering from unemployment or uh, folks about to be kicked out of their homes. Uh, instead, it's just sitting there in these massive funds, and it's likely going to all get either reverted back to the federal level or dumped into uh, the unemployment trust fund at the end of the year when the CARES Act says we lose it if we didn't spend it. I'm really worried about the fact that, that money's not getting to the hands of people that need it right now. I think that conversation is going to continue. You know, We all hope there will be additional stimulus money from the federal level. We don't know if they'll give us that kind of free- freedom with it. We don't know if they'll extend our ability to spend that money past December 31st. Um, Those are all unknowns that we're gonna be dealing with. Now, at the meantime, we're predicting, uh, well, Republican leadership anyway, is projecting a a budget hole this next year as a result of the economic impacts of about 4%. That's a few hundred million dollars short budget. I'm I'm positive we're not the only state that's gonna be dealing with that. There may or may not be relief that happens from a federal level, Um, but if not, we're gonna have a whole lot of holes to fill in our budget. and I don't know where that money's going to come from. So we're going to have some tough, tough decisions to make. Now, I should tell you, I'm also trying to get some answers because it seems like Republican leaders go behind closed doors and decide on a, a revenue estimate of how much money they think we'll have next year. And then they don't tell anyone in the public or even in the minority party how they came to those numbers. So we're trying to get some more answers on that um, so that we actually go in with an accurate idea of what the budget's going to look like. But it's going to be a tough year. It's going to be a tough year for us to make sure that the things that need the money most get it. And we're going to be asking for help from the federal level, I think.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Peter Meredith. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Peter Meredith. He is a Democrat from St. Louis. I want to shift to marijuana policy uh, because you have uh, introduced legislation for a couple of years now to legalize marijuana on a recreational level. And I know you've been very active in the debate on the medical marijuana level. Jacqueline, you know this topic a lot better than I do. So I'm going to turn the questioning over to you.
2: Let's be clear. I know the topic better than you do because I report on it, not because I'm somehow an expert in marijuana.
0: <laughs> that's a, that's fair.
2: I wonder, only because I covered this extensively in Illinois. They had a very robust policy um, and they, they did it legislatively. We're seeing now in, in Missouri with the medical marijuana program that you know, it wasn't perfect when voters decided to do it through a referendum. So is there a push to do it rec- to do recreationally through the legislature or is that just a pipe dream?
1: No, I, I, I wish that there were a push in the legislature. Um, I have filed this bill every year since I've been in the house because I do consider it a priority for many of the reasons you said and, and many more that I'd love to talk about here, here as well. Um, but uh, I will say, I have not seen the political courage from Republican leaders in particular to actually take this conversation seriously. Um, we came close with medical marijuana. Uh, it did actually pass, there, there was a version that passed the House. Uh, the Senate had some major opposition to it, and I expect that that opposition is still there from a few senators in particular that I know hate the conversation of uh, expanding access to marijuana. Um, Now, I'm going to disagree a little bit with your contention that uh, that the legislature would necessarily do a better job than than a grassroots um, push by the people. Um, And I would even argue that a lot of the problems that came out of that program currently aren't really a result of how they were designed. Um, They were designed to try and limit some of those. And yet the folks implementing it uh, have expressed openly the director of the department of health has openly said randall williams has said he thinks that marijuana is dangerous and addictive so he's trying to limit the supply despite the constitution actually saying that the north star should be patient access so i think that it's actually been a result of of leaders that want to both uh limit access to marijuana but also uh want to limit the players that can actually get involved in the business side and the economic side and benefit from it Uh, that have corrupted the process, uh, either through incompetence or actual corruption, uh, and and that most of the problems with the rollout have been a result of that, not of the constitutional amendment.
2: Would, uh, devil's advocate, would we see those problems? Would we see that... Kind of mismanagement, as you say. If we did it legislatively, if we were able to hash out those details with experts in committee hearings and kind of anticipating what might become of a program rather than a paragraph in the constitution.
1: Well, first of all, it wasn't a paragraph in the constitution. It was actually a very detailed, long piece of of, of uh, work in the constitution that I do think ought to have been in the in legislation instead. Now, the legislature could have stepped in and actually given more guidance on things like the cap, one of the number one problems here, and uh, that that the department decided to arbitrarily put a cap on the number of licenses for uh, participants in the market. Now, the constitution could have been silent on that as as one might think it would be a generic legalization and then leave it to the legislature to come up with the details. But instead they put a bare minimum that the department had to allow. And the department treated that as a minimum and a maximum. Well. I don't think I don't have any reason to think that the legislature would have done a better job at addressing that when the legislature could have addressed the cap already this year and hasn't, because there are probably similar players involved in the legislative process as there are in in the administrative process that would come in and lobby for their people to have the best deal in this process. And I don't I don't really have faith in the legislature to do a better job of that.
2: I suppose I'm a bit jaded because I come from where I covered it in Illinois that has a supermajority Democrats who you know, were actively involved in trying to get marijuana legislation passed in, in a good way. Um, it was a 100-page bill, but they definitely handled a lot of details that I myself would have never thought of. Now, yeah. you know that there are a lot of reasons that you support recreational marijuana. Obviously, a lot of people talk about the tax money, But there are a lot of other reasons um, for legalization. Um, A big part of the pushover in Illinois, it was the decriminalization and expunging records, just essentially social equity. And what we see with medical marijuana programs across the country is overwhelmingly it is dominated by white males. White males are profiting off of something that people of color have been punished for for years. Um, so I'd just like to take the opportunity, allow you the opportunity to explain why you feel recreational marijuana legalization is a priority.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that, uh, I think. Uh, and, and honestly, there's some Republican support for this privately. There's massive Republican support for this among Republican electeds. They just aren't really comfortable saying it publicly. And and that that goes to the the money, of course. There's a huge revenue opportunity, as you mentioned. Uh, we see that in other states, but the cost savings of not uh, criminalizing marijuana is enormous as well. There's a social justice side of it where right now, um, even after we, we took steps toward decriminalization a few years ago, in 2018, uh, there's an ACLU report that says that half of the drug arrests in the state of Missouri were over marijuana. And this is something that dramatically impacts poor and uh, minority communities far more than it does middle and upper class white people. Um, and uh, that, that's simple, simply an injustice. I mean, people getting locked up, having long-term or permanent consequences from a criminal record, from time in jail and prison, from lost jobs um, a- as a result of, of using something that white middle-class or middle-class people use as or more readily. Um, so there's a justice issue there, but there's also a savings. Uh, the amount of police resources and judicial system resources and prison costs and jail time costs that we, uh, that we have to pay for by locking people up for this offense that most of us in society don't actually think is harming anybody, I think is, is absolutely shameful. Now, I think there are a lot of Republicans that can, can buy both the freedom side of this. I mean, look, these are Republicans that say the government shouldn't be able to, to fine me for not wearing a mask. And, and yet the government is locking people up for decades for having a, a, a nonviolent drug charge for marijuana. Um, I think that this is something we should all be able to come together and say, it's it's time we change it.
2: In terms of social equity and recreational marijuana, what would you like to see a program look like in Missouri and allowing people who have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs, the war on marijuana, get involved in a program?
1: I, I think that's a really important question, um, and, and it's a tough answer. Um, my bill doesn't really address some of this. I know there are some other versions out there, like uh, Representative Price filed one that that includes some protections that make sure that, that uh, communities that have been the most disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs also have a um, to it uh, with like reductions in, in maybe what they have to pay um, as as application fees or making sure that a certain percentage of licenses are going to folks from different communities. Um, I, I think that's really important because as you mentioned earlier, you know there there are a lot of times that uh, after a prohibition when we legalize an industry, it's a bunch of white men that end up making the money off of it, and the folks that had been the hurt hurt the most by prohibition uh, continue. Uh, to not have access to um, that industry and, and, and actually make money off of it. Um, I think as this is happening fast, that's something we really need to be intentional about, making sure that we include.
2: You say that there are several Republicans who offer support for this behind closed mm-hmm. doors. How do you get them to support this out in the open on the House floor?
1: Well, there are a few that, that have uh, been bold in, in, in taking public stances. Uh, I know Shamed Dogan um, has, has talked openly about it. And some members of the, the actually the further right uh, conservative caucus have, have stood on the floor and talked about uh, how we shouldn't be locking people up for this, but it's gonna be a challenge. Honestly, I couldn't even get them to, to remove the marijuana trafficking legisl- or laws from our books last year um, that, that would put people in prison for life. Um, the same kind of penalty as first degree murder uh, for trafficking or for driving a, a bunch of marijuana across our state line or across our state. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, so it's, it's an uphill battle to actually get Republican support for it. I do think that actually public support um, has to come first and we need the public demanding this of our legislators. Um, uh, that's why I am making sure that we're talking about it openly, those of us that are comfortable about it and trying to get the public to make phone calls and, and say openly, um, it's time we catch up to what other states are doing And realize that that this this drug war against marijuana in particular, uh, this prohibition isn't working. It hasn't helped. And it's only caused a whole lot of
0: problems. So in the last couple minutes that we have left, uh, I do want to touch on something that you have become internationally known for. And that is uh, being at a committee hearing over a non-binding resolution of Republicans who were upset with the results of the 2020 election and wants Congress to essentially reverse the results in various states without investigations. The reason why I didn't have a lot of interest in this is not because I'm not interested in the election, but because it's a non-binding resolution. It's never going to make it to the House floor. It did make it out of this committee, but it's not even going to make it into another committee before it goes to the House floor. And in There was It goes in my mindset that a former state representative uh, Trent Skaggs did a resolution a number of years ago saying, I'm doing a resolution about how resolutions are worthless and people in Washington, D.C. are not going to read resolutions sent from Missouri. So I don't care if it was a conservative resolution or a liberal resolution. It's hard for me to get super excited about it. But a lot of people have gotten super excited about this one. Just explain the situation and how it was, what was it, what it was like to be in it?
1: Sure. Well, it it was certainly not something I had on my 2020 bingo card that uh, I would be in a hearing talking about overturning the results of elections in six other states. And that I would be uh, arguing with Rudy Giuliani um, via zoom. Uh, That was not something I expected. And it honestly was uh, overwhelming as it happened. And I realized it was happening. Um, But Jason, I shared your sentiment going into this, and I wanted to kind of treat this as this is, this is a joke. This is massive Republican pandering to an extreme base because they saw a poll that 70% of Republicans in Missouri believe Trump won the election. And so they're pandering they're positioning for, for um, their next primaries and whatnot. The problem is, and honestly, the days since that hearing have made this all the more obvious to me. This is far more dangerous than I mean, this is this is perpetuating these lies and, and this misinformation and propaganda campaign that is going on across our country and that is so strong here in Missouri that is undermining our democracy as we know it. Um, look, there's no widespread, there's no evidence of widespread fraud. People can point to all these different YouTube videos that they've seen or whatever, but anyone that's actually researched it, all 59 judges, many of whom were wrote appointed by Trump himself, have said there's nothing here. William Barr, who was Trump's guy, like his biggest backer that did whatever he wanted for the last few years, even finally said uh, there's nothing here and was forced to resign over it. But what's happened is this huge portion of Americans and especially Missourians believe deeply that this horrible conspiracy has happened, that their vote was denied from them. And and they're, they're ready to take up arms. And and I mean, this is the kind of thing you read about happening in the lead up to the civil war. And I'm scared about where we're at. And so when I see Republican leaders who frankly know better, they should be doing what, what Senator Blunt finally did the other day and saying, this election is over. The facts are facts. Instead, they're fanning the flames of this division that I am really worried about. And, you know, I'm getting I'm getting voicemails and emails calling me evil and, and, and saying hateful things about what I'm doing. Honestly, I think that's happening in both directions to some extent, but the divide's getting bigger. The misinformation is insane. And uh, I, I'm scared that it's gonna be hard for us to come back and actually come together and work on things that actually matter every day after this. So I, I'm not willing to just consider it a meaningless uh, stunt anymore.
0: So one of the other interesting things about this is you. the Democrats asked for Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft to testify. Eric Schmidt uh, did an amicus brief about how he supported the Texas lawsuit aimed at overturning the election and then tried to intervene. He did not show up. But Secretary Ashcroft did. What was your impression of Secretary Ashcroft's uh, appearance before the uh, committee? Because the parts I saw it seemed like the Democrats were, were actually pretty happy he was there and were reasonably happy with his answers.
1: I always have to give Jay Ashcroft some credit. Um, he, he does his job well from his perspective. And, and you know, he, he shows up, he's communicative, he's open, um, uh, he's respectful. Um, I, I get along with him very well, even though we disagree emphatically on a whole lot of things, especially about how elections ought to be run. But when asked to come, he came, and he answered our questions. Uh, now, he walked a very fine political line uh, between uh, saying, yes, uh, Joe Biden is the president-elect right now, but there is a process and things could change. He, 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 he tried to acknowledge that and, and danced away a little bit. But, um, He did say, uh, you know, that the chair tried to say he was there to speak in support of the resolution. And he when we confronted him on that, he said, no, 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 I'm not in support of the resolution. I'm here for informational purposes. And I do think that's important. Um, And uh, I I respect that about him. Now, Eric Schmidt, I will tell you, I I was really looking forward to being able to ask him a whole lot of questions about that amicus brief about uh, arguments he made in it. Um, about the absolute frivolous nature of it and how it was completely discarded by the Supreme Court and how it wasted Missouri resources because he actually used our staff to draft that brief. Um, I wanted to talk to him about all that uh, and uh, I'm pretty disappointed that he refused to even show up, um, I guess, thinking that, that he's not really subject to the government oversight uh, that the committee is tasked with doing.
0: Well, the last question I want to touch on is, is, is the perception. Like I've been very upfront on Twitter that I think that Joe Biden is, was president-elect after Pennsylvania was called. I've been following election procedure pretty carefully, at least from a Missouri perspective. And I've also covered elections that have been overturned and had to be done again. Not just the Bruce Franks at uh, Penny Hubbard race, but the Susan Carlson, uh, Stacey Newman race in 2012. This is not my first rodeo when it comes to election irregularities, overturning elections. And, and nothing I saw from any of the states rose to the level to overturn any of the results. But it's one thing to say that, and it's a one thing to try to convince ordinary Missourians of that. And the, the fact is that this state voted for Donald Trump by larger margins than any presidential candidate in modern history, save for Ronald Reagan in 1984. And they did it twice. There's an allegiance to Donald Trump among ordinary Missourians that I have never seen among any other presidential candidate I in my 15 years of covering Missouri politics. So how how are you gonna get over this? I don't think I don't think you can convince some people who firmly believe this election was stolen. Otherwise, no matter what me or Jacqueline or even Republicans like you know, Shamed Dogan say, it seems like there's nothing that's gonna convince people. It does feel that
1: way. Um, and I'm, I'm terrified of it, honestly. Uh, there are a lot of people that just refuse to accept that. 59 judges come down and say that there's nothing here. Trump appointed judges, if that's not good enough, and, and they continue to say, well, then they must be part of the conspiracy. Okay, well, now William Barr says it. Well, now he must be part of the conspiracy. Uh, boy, they're willing to go really far with this. What's especially interesting to me is, you know, we we, in this committee, we had Republicans talking about how Missouri's elections went smoothly. It was great. There was no fraud. Our elections were solid. And yet, every one of the problems that they say they claim happened in other states, they're saying, well, because of all the mail in ballots that happened. Those happened here, but they don't think that they were fraudulent here. They claim, well, it was those Dominion machines that were in these other states. Well, those were in 23 counties here in Missouri. We don't see anything, any reason to think that they were suspicious here. I think what has to start happening is more and more times that all has to be said. People have to hear it, people have to see it, and more Republican leaders will have to gradually, when Trump is no longer president, start having the courage to say honestly that that is not what happened. It's gonna take time. It's gonna take face-to-face local conversations. Honestly, it's gonna take Democrats like me being face-to-face with people that think that Democrats are part of a conspiracy and, and letting each other know that we're human. And we are all, we have families, we have communities we care about. We all want what's better, our country and for the people that, that, that we care about, even if we disagree about how we get there and that none of us are part of this deep, crazy conspiracy. And, and they have to see us as humans first. COVID is making that harder because face-to-face conversations, especially with with Democratic-leaning people, aren't happening. We're not, we didn't knock doors this cycle. So claims from Donald Trump that we were running pedophile rings and things like that, they didn't have a human face that, that, that was getting tied to that uh, face-to-face in person, only on TV and in radio. We have to have those face-to-face conversations. We have to have our family conversations, even with the people that are on the other side of the aisle that we're all mad at. Um, we have to be willing to actually just talk to each other and, and, and remember each other's humanity. And then over time, I, I have to pray that we can get there.
2: I, I also wanna add that I think it's that Jason and I, other members of the press have a really important role in this and um, mm-hmm. trying to kind of squash these theories um, about election fraud, um, because that it, that is important, that's an important part of our job. And this is an an original thought, uh, uh, actually a reporter uh, talked about this on Twitter, um, that Jason Foley believes that a lot of Missourians do believe that the election was stolen. We need to emphasize that that's not evidence of fraud, that's just being repeatedly told over and over again, that the election was going to happen in two ways. Either Donald Trump was going to win or the election was stolen. So yeah. I think we all have a really big responsibility in trying to help uh, restore faith in one of the most sacred treasures that we get to do as Americans.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, th- these are the, the the things that you see happen when, when autocrats try to take power and, and really turn a nation into an autocracy. And it is on all of us to push back against that. And, and, and help uh, make sure people are looking at all of the, the facts and uh, not just getting caught in these bubbles of propaganda.
0: Well, Representative, thank you for coming back on this show. And for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter?
2: Driscoll NPR.
0: And Representative, how could people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web?
1: at Peter for Mo on Twitter, on Twitter, and I'm also pretty active on Facebook.
0: Thank you very much, and until next time, so long.
1: Perch wings on the musk and crisp Tumbled and unraised Darkening hearts and dreams Wide and definite Ghostly kill the air and sun.